When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. It's January 4th, 1936, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. The U.S. music magazine Billboard began its life strictly as a trade publication. In fact, it was initially for bill posters. And so if you'd picked up a copy today in history in 1936, you were far more likely to be a jukebox operator looking for new discs for your collection than an everyday music fan. And if you were, what you found on page 66 would surely have been of great interest to you, the first ever pop music chart. Yeah, and at number one on this chart was the song Stop, Look and Listen. I mean, I say song, it was more of a track. It was recorded by the jazz violinist Joe Venuti and his orchestra. It's it's funny because actually the song itself has this solo by Venuti at the beginning, but that's kind of his contribution to it. But admittedly, like his <laughs> what he does there does kind of make you want to get up and dance. But this list itself is basically the forerunner of the US Billboard chart, which, you know, obviously ranks the popularity of music across various categories you know and today it includes all kinds of things r&b hip-hop country alternative christian latin and so on but the first ever chart didn't have any genre categories at all yeah, but that's because everything that was being bought and documented was by white people and orchestras. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's funny listening to you describe Joe Venuti through the prism of 21st century music aficionado. I mean, yeah, the reason that there's not an obvious solo is because that's not how songs were constructed back then. You had a big band, you know, this is the era of Glenn Miller, and they'd be led by someone who you wouldn't necessarily hear on the record mm. at all. Um, in fact, there were three number ones on this day. It's kind of complicated. Joe Venuti was one of them, but he was the number one from Columbia Records. There was also a number one from Brunswick Records, which was Quicker Than You Can Say by Ozzy Nelson and Orchestra. And there was a number one by RCA Victor, which was The Music Goes Round by Tommy Dorsey and Orchestra. And the reason for that was, as Rebecca indicated, Billboard really was a kind of industry publication. So they thought it was more important to say which of the three leading record companies' records were popular than it was to create an ultimate hit parade. Yeah, and the charts actually didn't sit in the music section of the magazine. They sat on a page devoted to coin-operated phonograph Mm. industry operators, (laughs) i.e. jukeboxes. We we talked a bit in our jukebox episode about people didn't call them jukeboxes at the time. It was considered a little bit loose. So Mm. they were coin-operated phonographs. So I suspect they were basing the figures off of sales to jukebox operators rather than to individual purchases. If you like the sound of this, contact your supplier, get some records from (laughs) Brunswick. I mean, that's really why it was there. When we look at them now, there's not really many songs that stand out as one that we'd know but the RCA Victor number one the music goes around by Tommy Dorsey that one at the time was a huge catchy annoying 
hit. It inspired a movie of the same name to cash in on its popularity. That turns out that's not a new thing. And in their review of the film, the New York Times wrote, it preserves in film the stark record of a social phenomenon. In this case, the conversion of a song hit into a plague like Japanese Beatles or Chain Letters. So, <laughs> and all when you look at all 30 songs, they're all, as you say, big band numbers. And interestingly, considering this is for the week ending 30th of December, there is only one Christmas record in there. There's mm. Santa Claus is Coming to Town, described as a novelty foxtrot. It was a new song at the time, with Jingle Bells as the B-side. There's also a song by Benny Goodman called Santa Claus Came in Spring, and I listened to it, and it doesn't really qualify. It's not a Christmas song. You know, it's a love song. So it's interesting that, you know, for a Christmas chart, obviously the concept of Christmas hits hadn't quite become a thing yet. Well, that lack of obvious Christmas connection may be in part due to the fact that the way that they decided who was on top on these charts was frankly bonkers. They checked on sheet music sales, record sales, requests from band leaders at nightclubs, ballrooms and hotels, <laughs> and requests mailed to radio stations because the record business had entered this really steep decline in the early 1930s with the Great Depression. So record sales just weren't considered to be an accurate indicator of what was popular at that moment in the way that, say, being played on radio or being played in nightclubs really was. And so there must have been a great deal of subjectivity going on in this. Yeah, but that's always been the case with all of Billboard's charts, hasn't it? In a way that feels quite foreign if you're from the UK as I am and you grow up thinking that the chart, you know, for all its flaws, is nonetheless the UK chart, the top 10 at least, is calculated purely from sales. I realise that's been broadened, obviously, in the 21st century to include streams, but nonetheless, people actually making a choice to play a thing. Whereas in the US, it's always, thanks to Billboard being this kind of industry title, um, it's always been an amalgam of lots of forces, some of which can quite clearly be manipulated. So, you know, music pluggers putting their songs on the radio could bolster a top 100 hit. So it charted much higher than it would have done based purely on sales alone. And you touched on the effect of the depression, Arian, but I think it's worth emphasising just how close the record industry came to collapsing. So mm. in the mid-1920s, there had been improvements in sound quality that meant that records were no longer kind of a novelty thing that you'd go and put, you know, put your ear to the ear horn at the local saloon and record players have been flying off the shelves because the economy was booming everyone wanted to get in on this new phenomenon but then after the crash record sales decreased from 104 million records sold in 1927 to 10 million in 1930 and as you can see that almost caused the industry to collapse by this point there were only four record companies surviving in the US and the recovery was partly aided by the lifting of prohibition in late 1933 which boosted the jukebox industry enormously now that people were going back to bars and saloons and then also the development of cheaper record players so this really was a moment for the record industry where things were tentatively starting to look hopeful again after a very real prospect that the industry would completely collapse. Yeah, and of course that actually accounts for why you would broaden out the survey, wouldn't you, beyond just the amount of records that have been sold? Because what are you saying there? You're basically saying what wealthier people are buying um, Mm. because records are expensive and there's a depression going on. So it makes sense to have requests and stuff included in it. And also that possibly accounts for why after this day in 1936, the charts only appeared sporadically for the next four years. And it really Mm. was a magazine feature Uh, rather than a fixture for the public to measure. It was, do you work selling jukeboxes? Here's an occasional feature that will help you in that occupation. 
Yeah. But it really wasn't until the 1940s that Billboard began recognising black music by featuring a Harlem hit parade that listed the top 10 best-selling records from, well, and this again, they just did this, this sort of crazy idea where they went to a selected group of record stores in Harlem in New York City and they were like, what's selling? And that's going to be the what makes up this particular page. And again, it had taken 20 years after the first appearance of successful so-called race records featuring black performers back in the 1920s that Billboard's Harlem hit parade finally sort of recognised the distinct popularity of black music that wasn't reflected in its mainstream, that is to say, white hit parade. Yeah, there was a decade of a lot of change for the chart because it, it was in the July 1940 issue that Billboard introduced a new version of its hit parade called the Music Popularity Chart, which combined retail sales, but also things that had previously been listed in separate charts like sheet music sales, radio airtime and jukebox plays. At this point, private in-home consumption was not yet dominant enough to be the defining metric. So this music popularity chart revamped the way record sales were measured because for the first time they were polling record stores rather than record companies seems like an obvious thing to do but it turned it more from being kind of a you know a chummy industry hey I'll call up my friend at RCA and ask him what they want us to put in the chart essentially Mm -hmm. and turned it into something that was a little bit more objective and after this was established then that was then they started getting more granular so you did see the emergence of more charts for specific genres like country and western. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it, that country came after R&B, though. You know, if we're talking about a mostly white readership, they did actually at least acknowledge that black records was kind of more important to document separately than than country, which they called most played jukebox folk records, uh, which they started publishing in 1944. Yeah, and I think the reason that they did that was because black artists, unless they were basically completely anonymous, you know, they were only playing instrumentals of big band tracks like the white orchestras, they wouldn't get any radio airplay. So they needed a way to reflect what black music was popular, but it would never have made it onto the hip parade because it wouldn't have been played on the radio. Yeah, but this idea of the industry still meddling with the chart was kind of solidified, actually, in 1998, when the Hot 100 evolved from being a chart of commercially available singles to allowing songs to get to number one on airplay alone Hmm. if they were being placed highly across national radio stations, which feels weird to be able to just, Hmm. you know, if you're universal, give everyone your new single and get to number one before the song's even been tested on the public at all. Yeah, and for most of its history, only songs that had been released as singles were eligible, which ended up keeping hits like Torn by Natalie Imbruglia and Don't Speak by No Doubt from becoming number ones because the music industry at the time in the 1990s was focusing on a strategy of promoting album sales by not releasing hit tracks as singles. Mm. So they were flooding the airwaves with them. They were really getting them out in the public consciousness, but they weren't releasing them as singles. So you had to go and buy the album. But because of that, it meant that these songs were massive hits, but they weren't appearing on the Billboard Top 100. So in December 19. 1998, Billboard lifted that rule so any song could be eligible. Here's one weird thing I discovered in researching this episode, which is that the most common Hot 100 song title is Hold On, which has 18 hits. There are 18 uh, Oh, it's actually called Hold songs. On. I thought you were asking us just to wait for the answer. No, yeah, no, <laughs> that's it. 18 different songs have reached the chart from a group called Radiance uh, in 1968 to a song by Adele called Hold On. But there was only one that hit number one, and that was Wilson Phillips. Uh, and that held the top spot for just one week in 1990. So it's not surprising, perhaps, that uh, even I've forgotten about it. Tomorrow. 
Oh, he's a good writer, this Stevenson, so why is he writing this crap? Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors.